Hi everyone and welcome back to Shadow Light. I'm Zoe and thank you for joining me as we navigate the big issues on your feed, moving from apathy and overwhelm to collective action and hopeful pathways forward. This week it's a fun one, it's a joyful one, it's one that I've been looking forward to for a really long time. This week we're asking, can an art movement help us solve the world's problems? And before we get into it, I'm just going to give a bit of background because this subject that we're talking about today is really important to me. So I've been in the climate space since I was around 16, volunteering with my local Greenpeace. I've campaigned on the local level in London and in Bristol in the UK, at the international level around the UN Conference of the Parties, which are the global gatherings of, of world leaders to figure out what we're going to do about climate change. And I'm 27 now, so I've been doing that for around, I don't know, 10 years in the game, which isn't that long, but it feels long. And, and after a while of kind of doing this campaign work, I felt really pessimistic. I got really terrified at the scale of change that we needed to make. I felt guilty around the choices I was making. I felt bad about what I was eating, about hanging out with my friends. I felt bad if I wasn't campaigning all the time. And I, I had to sort of mentally log out, even though I was still working in the climate space to be able to kind of function, I had to stop engaging. And this really culminated in 2021. It was mid-pandem. I was stuck at home. I was feeling sad um, and I was feeling hopeless. And then I read a piece by Andrew Sage for Shadow entitled The Hope of Solarpunk. And something really shifted for me. It opened up the world. It really opened up the world for me. And I've been absolutely obsessed with Solarpunk ever since. It gave me a whole new framework to understand the work that I was doing and how to live my life and some really important principles that I, I carry forward to this day. So when the shadow team said that I could interview the author of that piece for the podcast, I was so excited. I was so, so excited. And in episode one, we spoke about eco-anxiety. And for me, this piece of writing and solar punk in and of itself was a hugely helpful for me moving through climate anxiety to a place of hope and action. So, Andrew, you've been on my dream interview list for a while now. So why don't I stop fawning over you and you can tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, <laughs> but I appreciate the guess. <laughs> I'm Andrew Sage uh, from the YouTube channel Andrewism. For about three years now, I have been creating videos about topics ranging from uh, social revolution to decolonization to youth liberation to library economies to... Solar punk, of course, and whatever else tickles my fancy, I suppose. I'm really passionate about writing, about art, about organizing, about my struggling garden. And I'm just really glad to be here um, and to be able to speak a bit more about solar punk and to continue to invigorate and hopefully reach more people and invigorate more people's imaginations to create a new and better world in the shell of the old. If you're picking up an accent, it's because I'm from the beautiful Twin Island nation of Trinidad Tobago. And um, if you're picking up any rain in the background, that's because it's the rainy season. Thanks again for having me here, Zoe. I think it's very um, atmospheric hearing the soft rain in the background, actually. And if the listeners don't like it, they need to relax. They need to relax. Um, so consider me invigorated, and I'm so excited to be here with you, hoping to invigorate some others. But I'd love if you could just give an intro. What actually is solar punk? That's a good question, right? Because it's a lot of different things. Some people say, oh, it's a genre. You know, some people might say, oh, it's an aesthetic. I'm more of the opinion that it's a movement, right? It's about envisioning a positive and sustainable future, exploring that intersection between humanity and nature and technology and how 
those three things can exist in harmony and even interrogates the very idea that there's a division between those things, that there's a division between humanity and nature, there's a division between humanity and technology, there's a division between humanity, nature and technology, or nature and technology. It's very much rooted in how we get from point A, which is the situation we're in now, to point B, which is a better world. And it's not so much about getting to that point B, being at that point B, but more so the process in between point A and point B. It's more so about how we are able to wield our collective imagination and creativity to think outside the box, to find solutions to today's issues, to build alternatives to today's institutions and politics, to bring people together, to take charge of their local environments, to make decisions together, to promote social equity, uh, getting our hands dirty, literally and figuratively, uh, and making a difference uh, in our communities and our lives, whether we're artists or writers, or designers or activists or thinkers, really no matter our background. It's about dreaming and doing and making a real impact wherever we find ourselves. I love that. I love that. And I mean, something after I read the piece that you wrote, I like just really delved into um, solar punk, just solar punk imagery, and I found it really inspiring. And then I started doing some reading. I read um, recently read actually some for the Wild Built. Um, which I really recommend if anyone's ever read it. It's a really short novella, which kind of imagines an alternative world. I started that recently. Brilliant. Oh, so good. It's just so nice to read something where you're like, oh, okay, we're doing some practical imagining about what a better world would be like. And something that I really realised was how locked in my imagination had been and how I was like really limiting my imagination to what you know people in power were telling me was possible. What I really love about this movement is it really does use art to liberate the imagination. I was wondering if you could give any kind of uh, recommendations of pieces of art or, or books or films that you've watched of kind of like a solar punk nature that have inspired you and what you've learned from them. Sure. So uh, for one, I'd like to shout out my audience on YouTube. In 2021, I launched an art collaboration, not an art competition, but an art collaboration along the theme of solar punk, and I got a few submissions, and so that video is out, uh, displaying a variety of artworks that dare to imagine what a solar punk world would look like. This year, I'm doing it again. The period for submissions is closed now, and I plan on launching that video soon, but there will hopefully be another one next year. Uh, so I just want to shout out all the artists in my audience who have contributed to that project. But there are, of course, other established works that I draw a ton of inspiration from. For example, I'm very much inspired by Walk Away, the novel by Cory Doctorow. It presents this near future society where people have chosen to walk away from you know, traditional economic systems and to build their own sustainable communities using open source technology, renewable energy, and it's really interesting to follow from beginning to end. There's also The Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin. That's a classic, classic science fiction novel that people talk about, both in the context of anarchism and in the context of solar punk. Uh, and it really explores those themes of social and environmental justice, of anarchism, and of decentralized governance. Uh, what you'll find with a lot of the works that typically get uh, put under the label of solar punk is a lot of them were established before solar punk was uh, even a concept. But lately, as solar punk has grown in popularity, we do see more and more anthologies and um, novellas like that of Monk and Robots that are really carving out this space for solar punk specific literature. 
Um, another example that some people look to um, as a piece of soul punk media, though it is a bit outdated in some ways and flawed in others, uh, that is Ecotopia by Ernest Kallenbach, which was published all the way back in 1975, describing this whole fictional Pacific Northwest-based solar punk society, kind of, ecologically balanced, almost hippie-like utopian society. So that's something that you really have to sort of pick some of the good parts and leave out the rest, but it's a really nice piece of literature as well, I would say. And there are other places where people have drawn inspiration for solar punk, you know, certain Studio Ghibli works. The visionary architecture of folks like Paolo Soleri and Luke Schwitten, and even though it's almost blink and you'll miss it, uh, some of the urban landscapes that you found in 2018's Black Panther, particularly in some of the streetscapes of Wakanda, people have brought that into the fold of solar punk as well. So there's a lot of different eclectic sources where you can find solar punk inspiration and solar punk media that inspires, and it's really beautiful to see more and more of that coming out as Sud Punk gains more popularity. It's so true. Now you're saying it, I'm really thinking like, oh my God, Wakanda was such a solar punk utopia. And actually it's so interesting to see those ideas being reflected in from somewhere like Marvel. Besides the monarchy, of course, yes. <laughs> yeah, besides, oh my God, yeah, of course. Bes good point, beside <laughs> the monarchy. And I do think that's so true. Anyone who's a Studio Ghibli kid, I feel like that's partly why when I started looking at the imagery around solar punk, it really resonated with me because I was like such a Studio Ghibli kid. And it's like, you look at it and you're like, okay, maybe this isn't just a film I watch. Maybe this is giving me a tool to rethink about what the world could be. And I think not being afraid to like let your imagination go there is really liberating in a way. And I found that for me. I was wondering, because I know you've written about how you found solar punk and some of these works as a student could you kind of maybe share a little bit about how you came to it and and how it's kind of influenced you sure so i really discovered solar punk on tumblr which is one of its uh, places of origin a while back again when i was a student myself i was sort of going through a lot of other shifts in perspective at the time getting more into leftist politics Tumblr is also where I discovered anarchism for the first time, around the same time that I discovered solar punk. And it was really this uh, series of blog posts by um, Miss Olivia Louise on Tumblr. She had posted all these various aesthetic inspirations. And then from there, I found other solar punk-inspired aesthetics and accounts and started following along with that. And then at the same time, I was also reading more about anarchism and getting more into anarchist politics, anarchist philosophy and... Then later on, delving into social ecology and seeing the connections between Murray Bookchin, who was the founder of social ecology, and his concept of first nature, second nature, and third nature, and how that connected with the idea of a Sulapunk future. Because a lot of what Sulapunk talks about is that connection between humanity, nature, and technology. And the idea of first nature, second nature, and third nature is about, well, first nature is the natural world as it has evolved over millions of years. Second nature is human society, which is a subject to change because we created it out of our own imaginations, out of our own minds, and out of the material conditions we find ourselves within. And then third nature is really about bringing first and second nature together. You know, one plus two equals three, third nature, getting the divisions between the human world and the natural world to be, well, no longer there and finding ways to live uh, in ecologically sustainable communities 
where our fate as a species is intimately tied with the fate of the species around us, human, non-human, otherwise. I think it was really interesting what you were saying earlier about these ideas, even if they're not being called solar punk, have been around for a really long time. And also how they're kind of becoming more solar punk in itself as a framework or as a, a genre or as a movement, as however you want to describe it, is becoming more popular. And we're even seeing it reflected in these kind of like big blockbuster films. And like these ideas are really resonating with people, like almost like we're craving something outside of what we already have. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on why now it's, kind of gaining more traction? Is it just because these ideas are on Tumblr and more of us have access to the internet or is there something else kind of going on? Well, I think as uh, Gen Z comes into its own, as it as more and more of that generation shifts into adulthood, I, th- I would say, I mean, probably by now a good portion of Gen Z is. I uh, can't remember where the cutoff point is, but I do know that a lot more of Gen Z is adult or on the cusp of adulthood. And... Um, our entire uh, lives we've been hearing about climate change. We've been passing certain milestones of climate change as if they are, you know, milestones to celebrate, but, you know, they're milestones to mourn. And so having grown up in that setting of just being surrounded by climate doom, people are looking for solutions. You know, we hear scientists saying now, well, you know, it's already here. Climate change is already here, it's already happening, certain points have already been passed. And even if we radically transform everything tomorrow, we're still going to be feeling the consequences for decades, centuries. So that's not fun to think about. And it's it's not fun to look ahead for the next few decades of your life and just see doom and gloom and just things getting worse. Um, so I think a lot of people, particularly of my generation, have looked to solutions. And the thing about the solutions is that a lot of the times it's just like we get into activism, we get into whatever, and we get burnt out quickly, but we don't see things changing quickly enough. And it becomes easy to just check out entirely and just say, all right, I'm just going to fall back, try and enjoy my life as much as possible before the climate apocalypse kicks into the next gear and whatever the case may be. But I think the potency of Solarpunk what empowers it to really have that longevity. And I guess it remains to be seen if it will have that longevity, but I do believe it will. Uh, it's because it's not just hope for hope's sake, but it does offer that. It's hope rooted in action that anybody can put into place. It's Solarpunk, particularly on the praxis side of things, it embodies this do-it-yourself ethos that really no matter what global situations may play out as, you as an individual and you as part of a community, there will always be things that Solarpunk offers to you that you can do to improve your local circumstances. Because it's rooted in that sense of local and community-based resilience and autonomy and sustainability, because it's founded on a place of bringing people together to come up with solutions collectively uh, without reliance on governments, NGOs, corporations to come up with these solutions for us. Because the root of Solarpunk is the people, it's not dependent on a politician or government to put its changes into place. I think that's what it empowers it to carry on. 
to allow people to carry on, to continue to give people that motivation. Because a lot of the solutions, and I'll touch on them a bit later in the episode, but a lot of the solutions, as Wilpunk talks about, it being things that people can just go ahead and do. Um, even if, you know, the world has gotten worse, your corner of the earth, your community, your region, your bioregion, wherever the case may be, you can still find ways to survive, to mitigate, and to even thrive here and now and in the future. And so I think that's where the potency of Solarpunk lies. And um, I think that's why people are being drawn to it and carrying on with it. Although, like I said, it does remain to be seen whether it will carry on for decades into the future. But I believe that it will because it's only now getting started and we're already seeing a lot of the brilliant stuff that people inspired by Solarpunk have been able to do. I think it's really true. And I think it's whether you, I think, you know, some people might be like, not be like, I identify as a solar punk. But I think if you look at the kind of principles behind some of the, the work that's been done, you know, in the solar punk manifesto and the, the, the work that's kind of catalyzed from that, some of the principles are really ring really sensible to me they ring really sensible so whether you consider yourself like part of the kind of like the imagination work appealing to you but I think there are some really interesting principles for how we can build a community and I, I want to explore particularly one with you in, later but something that you were saying just then really resonated with me which is this idea I, I when I was really like despondent around the kind of climate stuff that was going on it was like this talking so much about systems change but beating myself up so much about individual kind of like behavior change and how I couldn't do all of the things that I should be doing to be a good person and part of what solar punk has helped me do is kind of reframe all of that kind of binary to be like yes we're advocating for systems change but we ourselves make up those systems and while I can't change kind of fossil fuel infrastructure overnight. I am a part of these systems and I have impact and I have power, especially if that power is joined up with community and that only enhances it. So I think that kind of reframing of it not being me as an individual, like siphoned off from the rest of the world. And if I'm, you know, use a plastic bottle once, I'm a terrible person. It's like, that's not useful for anyone. It's thinking about yourself as part of a larger system and where your impact and power lies. Something that, so I talk about, basically ever since your article, I, I talk about it a lot in the work that I do, especially with young people who face a lot of climate anxiety and climate doom. And something that I really find when I speak, young people, I feel like kind of generally get on board with it, like, right, okay, yes, sick. This is, feels good. This feels great. But something that I find like I come up against a lot when I talk about it with potentially people who are older than me is getting this resistance, like it's just an airy, fairy, utopian, kind of unrealistic vision for society. Um, it's much better to be kind of rooted in the realities of here and now. And I kind of want to pose to you, is there an actual political potential in solar punk or is it just a kind of unreachable utopian vision for society? Where is that political potential coming from? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, obviously it has its place in media and animation and literature, etc. But its real power lies, I think, when it goes beyond that. Um, and that is really what my mission has been. I'm not the first person to see the connections between anarchism and solar punk. But really a lot of my work and my channel has been about showing the practical steps and practical actions uh, and practical solutions can be taken in and outside of the realm of Sulapunk, inspired by and drawn from the centuries of anarchist political tradition and praxis. And in drawing that connection, because I think a lot of people have the same take with anarchism that they do with Sulapunk, oh, it's not realistic, oh, it believes too 
thinks too highly of human nature, this, that, and the third, that sort of um, ideological kinship between anarchism and pseudopunk has really been what has allowed me to show people that actually, no, it can work, whether you talk about pseudopunk, whether you talk about anarchists, and whether you talk about both combined. There are ways that we can put the step, put the things into place. There are things that have been misunderstood that I can sort of clear up and show that actually, no, there is, there is a way forward, there is a path that can be taken. There are lessons that can be learned from the past. There are mistakes that were made in the past. But in this moment here now, considering the history of global movements over the past few decades and the victories and losses that have come to pass in that time, there are things that we can do. And there are some anarchists who I've interacted with who are like, oh, well, I saw some crypto bros using solarpunk for one of their pump and dump schemes or whatever. And it's like, okay, yeah, well, anybody could take anything and turn it into anything else, right? But it doesn't change the fact that Solarpunk has, it is about drawing together all of the solutions across the world, whether you're talking about ideologies like anarchism and social ecology, whether you're talking about solutions like permaculture, technological solutions, both high-tech and low-tech, drawing all those things together under one umbrella, whether those individual things call themselves Solarpunk or not bringing them under that umbrella of solar punk so people are able to see as this one coherent package. Wait, no. There are things that we can do. Um, it, and it is practical in a lot of ways. And so I, I can, if you'd like, go into some of those ways. Um, I typically use a, sort of a three-category model. I haven't actually given a label to my models. This is you know, fresh off the presses. <laughs> but let's call it my three-category model of revolution. I mean, I've, I've spoken about it on my channel, but I never gave it this title. But I can get into that if you'd like. Yeah, so, I mean, and I use this as a sort of a structure for approaching all kinds of changes, and not just in the realm of solarpunk. And just to be clear, it's not something I came up with on my own. I'm, of course, drawn from the legacy of several others before me. Um, but the basic idea of it is really oppose and propose, right? Any coherent and long-lasting action for social change and radically and vastly transformative social change requires actions to oppose and actions to propose. Now, that's two things which is why I split oppose into two parts and, well, propose is kind of its own thing. Uh, and so the three categories that I go with are acts of confrontation, acts of non-cooperation, and acts of prefiguration. Acts of prefiguration being the action to propose, the thing to propose. Acts of confrontation involves the actions we take, like protests and obstructions and occupations and expropriations and sabotage and other things that may or may not fall under the realm of legality, right? Non-cooperation would involve actions uh, like labor strikes and boycotts and student strikes and debt strikes and rent strikes and all the various actions necessary to disrupt the system from within and prevent it from functioning the way the powers that be wanted to. It even goes up to things like uh, mutiny and insubordination, all of those acts of non-cooperation. And in fact, if you look at some of the historical revolutions, you see that the mutiny of the military, for example, played a decisive role in the 
change in tides for that particular revolution. But I don't want to get too much into that. Acts of confrontation, acts of non-cooperation are both based on this recognition that we hold the power, and if we can realize it, we can change things. And I think as a lot of movements around the world do recognize acts of confrontation and acts of non-cooperation. My problem with a lot of the movements, and I know it sounds like I'm being an armchair critic here, but I'm really trying to be constructive, right? I'm saying this from a position of being in those movements. My issue is that we do these protests, we do these obstructions, we do these sit-ins, we do these uh, strikes and whatever. We're doing a lot of opposing. I don't think we're doing enough proposing. And then on the opposing side, and I'll get into that, there are certain movements that do a lot of proposing, but not enough opposing. Or they're not linking up with the movements that are opposing and vice versa. So you have a situation where there are movements that are fighting and fighting and fighting, but what are they fighting for? What are they fighting to defend? In the long term, how is that fight going to sustain itself? And on the other side, you have these movements that are establishing institutions and systems and trying to create alternatives and all that stuff. But then they get large enough and they get either squashed or co-opted or diverted from their original agenda or they just can't sustain themselves because they're just starved of resources, or government or corporation will step in and they will sabotage those projects in some way. Because any time that you're really going to create a really viable alternative to the existing system, the existing system's not going to sit back and just accept that, oh, well, you know, that's going to... These people are out here trying to build this system, and yeah, eventually it's going to, like, cut into our profits, but eh, you know, leave them be. Like, no, that's not going to happen eventually. If you become build up a big enough threat, um, they're going to want to intervene. So I think the emphasis that I try to place, because, yeah, I could talk about solar punk solutions, like, so what things we can do in isolation, actions we could take in isolation. But I think the thrust that needs to be emphasized is that we need to oppose and propose combined. Right. We need to confront, we need to not cooperate, and we need to prefigure alternatives. We need to start building alternatives, and we also need to be fighting to expand them, to defend them, to sustain them. When we are fighting, we need to have a home base to fall back on. We need to have something to be fighting to defend. We need to, for example, if we are striking, if we want our strikes to deliver that fatal blow on the system, that strike's going to need to last a long time. And how can that strike last a long time if that strike is dependent on the very system that it is striking against? And so that's really what I'm, a lot of my focus is on. Not so much the nitty-gritty individual actions, although I do try to cover that and touch on that, but really about connecting them to a broader and more coherent strategy that involves opposing and proposing. You've really deftly diagnosed the kind of problems with I don't know I, I, obviously I live in the UK definitely that resonates with the British left context and I think I'm pretty flawed that's that's a pretty pretty deaf diagnosis and I'm, I'm thinking now about the struggle we have here kind of on the left you know as a movement you know there's a lot of infighting everywhere of course but also in our party politics the left is constantly unable to articulate an alternative vision 
or that vision is too threat like that it's always on the defense um and is never on the kind of is never able to get to the point where it's in that proposed position and then on the other side from that you kind of have you know the the ngo industrial complex and all these ngos filled with people who do really want to do good work and are trying to propose and build different systems but just get absolutely subsumed into the funding cycle which means that they have to participate in the very systems which they're fighting so as you're saying this i'm thinking damn yeah that that definitely resonates with the with the context of which i've i've campaigned in and and live in now i really appreciate you also rooting because i think you know solar punk is a very forward-looking movement genre and it's really important that it is we don't get carried away and it is rooted in the struggles of today and that we make sure that we're linking back our kind of liberated imaginations into the struggles and the the work that has to be done on the ground now so yeah, I really appreciate you. That was very, giving me a lot to think about for sure. For those who are not kind of, who are learning about solo punk for the first time, I'm hearing you that you draw so much of your solo punk also with your anarchism. And you could, could you do a little bit of a definition of what anarchism is for the listeners? Sure. On a basic level, anarchism is the belief that rulership should not exist. It is a rejection of that dichotomy that exists between rulers and rule, and is really what distinguishes anarchism from the rest of the quote-unquote left. An anarchist analysis would approach any structure, any system, whether it be capitalism, statism, patriarchy, white supremacy, etc., and look at the power dynamics within those structures, within those systems, and seek to flatten those hierarchies that exist. Anarchism's position is that that dichotomy between rulers and ruled negatively affects both parties because the rulers are cut off from the broader humanity and are cut off from the information that is necessary to make the most collectively beneficial decisions. And the ruled, being in that position of subordination, lose their ability to act for themselves, lose their power to act for themselves, their ability to make their own decisions without looking to an authority, lose the drive as a result to seek the ability to exercise their power to make decisions for themselves, and thus to not have the consciousness necessary to change those, uh, that state of affairs. And so part of the anarchist struggle is about developing people's consciousness so that they may have that drive to pursue greater degrees of self-management. And so, and then in practicing self-management, they develop and they hone and they enhance their power to self-manage. A lot of the, one of the common critiques of anarchism is that, oh, well, people can't, people need to be led. People need rulers, need leaders, whatever the case may be. I do have a fairly nuanced position on leadership as a concept, but that's really too much in the weeds to get into right now. But when talking about this dichotomy between rulers and ruled, what I really want to emphasize is that it's self-reinforcing. And so the only way to break out of that is to actually do it. The only way for people to develop the powers necessary to manage themselves is to practice managing themselves. The only way that we shift from this hierarchical society to an anarchic society is for people to develop their powers, drives, and consciousness in line with anarchist principles. And that takes practice. Um, that takes actual action to hone that skill. Because it is a skill. It's a skill that this system, this society, deprives us of. But it is a skill that we can learn. And we know that we can learn it because, one, humans are extremely flexible species. And two, 
we see other humans do it. We ourselves do it in certain contexts. And it's just about finding ways to expand that ability to the broader social, economic, environmental, etc. level. Anarchism, you know, rejecting rulership and stuff, that is something people tend to emphasize, like, oh, anarchists just want to, like, throw a bunch of Molotov cocktails, burn down everything. But, and this, again, going back to pose and propose, anarchism is, it goes beyond just rejecting what is, because anarchists also dare to imagine what if. As in, what if we organize our society and institutions through horizontal cooperation, through free association, through mutual aid? And if we move with the intention of seeing that society come into fruition? You can look at anarchism even not necessarily as an end goal, but as a method. And so anarchist methods, you could find it in various points in human history. You could find it during the period of Paris Commune. You could find it during the Spanish Civil War. You could find it in many of the social movements today, particularly post-Occupy Wall Street. And in viewing it as a method, we can see we live in an era of grassroots and decentralized and, dare I say, anarchic social movements. Many of these social movements of the present day are structured through horizontal networks of cooperation rather than top-down hierarchies, even if they don't call themselves anarchist. And what a lot of anarchists try to emphasize is that when you structure your uh, movement in that way, it is far less open to being co-opted, it's far less open to being sabotaged from within or from without. There aren't these people at the top to be taken out and... Um, you know, throwing the whole movement into disarray because the whole idea is that each and every person in that movement has an equal stake and equal decision-making power in determining the direction that movement goes in. And so, like I mentioned, of course, solarpunk and anarchism have been tied for a while uh, because solarpunk has attracted anarchists and aided in the creation of new ones. You know, the aims of both are very easily aligned. If you imagine a world of today's institutions would they think of their solarpunk ideal, and that's for good reason. And so anarchism really offers a more robust political philosophy for those who want to expand their capacity to live and enact a solarpunk future. It's really interesting now, I feel like we're getting into some of the kind of principles of solarpunk and, and also how that has been informed by um, anarchism. And I want to talk about one in particular because... In last week's episode, Larissa, my co-host and I were deep diving into big tech and their supply chains. We were specifically kind of looking at Apple and how it's shaped the world in quite terrible ways and the lives that are sacrificed every day for these kind of monoliths to keep functioning that we kind of depend on in a way. And, you know, in every episode, we really try and find like something hopeful and actionable, like something that's kind of joins, join a movement or kind of support a movement. And, and we really struggled with with this one. We At the end of the episode, we both just felt hella depressed and like this is too big and uh, something that I really like about Solarpunk is that it, it part a key tenet of it is is to reimagine our relationship with technology and you said this quite earlier and it's something that I, I read in a, an article by Jank on on Solarpunk this about it being a harmony between humanity technology and nature about it being that that harmony and again, that's another one of those principles, which I feel like if you say it, it you don't have to be solar punk, you don't have to be anarchist to be like, that makes sense for a future that we're building towards harmony between humanity, technology and nature in a way that that works for the world and for the people in it and, and the ecosystems that we live in. And that makes sense. And I was wondering if you could kind of speak to what solar punk can teach us about, and anarchism as well, actually, that would be interesting as well, can teach us about technology and other ways of thinking about it. Is there a more liberating potential here, like 
Is there is there something different to big tech that we can we can hope for and build for? I think my stance on technology uh, in the context of Soulpunk has primarily been about looking at the low tech side of things, uh, because you know we hear technology and we immediately think, oh, Silicon Valley, or oh, holograms, or oh, VR, AR, solar panels, and all these different things. What I find is with a lot of the more recent technologies, there are certain issues that Solarpunk will have to address. And it's something that I'm very open to Solarpunk addressing. A common critique I get is that, oh, well, you are advocating for Solarpunk, but don't you know about the issues with solar panels? Which I understand where they're coming from. And the thing about to address solar panels in, in particular, we do need renewable energy sources, right? The idea that, you know, we won't need electricity. I don't see that happening. We will need electricity. We will need to generate electricity in some capacity. And at the same time, we need to reduce our energy consumption as a whole by dismantling the energy sucking growth demand and behemoth of industrial capitalism. But when we look at a lot of the renewable energies, one critique people tend to have is that, oh, well, Solbunk is supposed to be about climate justice as well. And isn't climate justice incompatible with the exploitative and extractive nature of rare earth mineral mining, which is a requirement for renewable energy, which is a requirement for a lot of modern technologies? I mean, these technologies have clear benefits, but the mining of the materials needed to make them can lead to deforestation and pollution of water sources and the displacement and enslavement of indigenous communities. All the high-tech solutions are potent, and I will not necessarily completely discard them or disregard them, but they aren't a panacea. You know, they offer a more positive alternative in some ways to our current systems, but they, they also come with their own set of challenges, and we can't just brush those aside. Uh, and I don't have the solutions to those challenges. I haven't done enough research and enough things to say. I mean, some people say, oh, well, what about biomining? What about you know, landfill mining and getting all materials from landfills instead of mining the ground? Or what about automated mining, using robots to mine instead of people and all these different things? I haven't done enough research on those things to actually advocate one way or another, and so I'll keep them out shut in that. But I will say that that is why my focus has primarily been on what low-tech solutions we can find. Because, you know, guess what? A lot of ancient civilizations, a lot of indigenous communities, a lot of just regular old quote-unquote, uneducated people have found very innovative and useful solutions that don't require a bunch of lithium batteries and solar cells to implement. Uh, in fact, a lot of those technologies and ideas and innovations they've come up with are a lot more capable of being distributed to the rest of the population. They're a lot easier to pick up on. They're a lot more democratic in terms of how they can be used, which kind of brings me to the idea that Ivan Illich talks about in his book, Tools for Conviviality, where he talks about this idea that because of the ways that technologies have developed, they become more and more specialized in some ways, and they require more and more specialists to be able to utilize in an effective way. Whereas what we need as a society is tools for conviviality, tools which are accessible and allow us to, you know, cooperate and that have a low barrier for entry for, you know, their development and use. Ivan Elch's book, Tools for Conviviality, was also a major inspiration for the development of the personal computer. So a fun fact. Of course, the PC is a little bit, you know, it has some barrier for entry, but it is a lot more accessible for people to put together for people to fix and that kind of thing compared to 
older and earlier models and forms of the computer. And so what I'm really about is finding those low-tech solutions, finding those low-tech ways to solve some of the issues that we're facing. Uh, one really good resource for that is the website Low Tech Magazine. And they offer all sorts of fantastic solutions. And some of them are a bit impractical in my eyes. You know, they have, for example, they might be talking about household bike generator. You know, you pedal and you power uh, some of your uh, materials just, just like that. But then there are other solutions they talk about that may be more effective. For example, we become quite reliant on international shipping, right? And that has consequences. One of the articles asks, you know, how to design a sailing ship for the 21st century. Sailing ships, you know, don't require a lot of the uh, inputs that these big barks require. Or they might talk about urban fish ponds as a low-tech solution for sewage treatment for towns and cities. Or they might talk about ways that we can make even healthcare a little bit more sustainable or finding ways to, you know, dig fruit trenches so we could cultivate subtropical plants and freezing temperatures. And so, I mean, that's something people could look into if they want, but that's something that I've been looking a lot more at these days, going back to the roots, going back to the older technologies and innovations people have come up with, going back to things like kelp, which have been cultivated and harvested for various uses for thousands of years, looking at things like bamboo. Again, people have been using it for thousands of years, and, you know, in modern day, we are now discovering oh, wait, this is actually a really useful material for certain things. Or, you know, looking at even things like mud, which a lot of people discard, oh, that's like a primitive technology. But mud has its uses, particularly in the extremely hot climates we find ourselves in today. And so that, that's where a lot more of my focus has been lately, if that answers your question somewhat. Yeah, it does. And you know what it's reminding me of is that, you know, if people don't know about this, there's a whole debate around carbon capture and storage. Um, it's this idea that like we need to develop technologies that will suck carbon out of the atmosphere and then we can dump it in the earth and that's how we'll solve climate change, right? And everyone's like, shit, we need to like invest those money into this. And, and it's like, we have that already. It's called a tree. It's called a tree. And I'm not saying... It's called a tree. It's called a tree. It's also called a kelp forest. Kelp forests do a lot to suck carbon as well, yeah. It's also called a kelp forest. It's also called, yeah, algae, seagrass, like, you know, all this stuff. Um, and so I'm I'm not, you know, I'm, I haven't got my head in the sand. I do think that, like, the technologies that we have are a crucial part of a transition. Yeah. I do think that the renewable technologies are an important part of a transition. But it For sure. Sometimes we get swept away, I think, because the of the conditions that we're in, we think that the only solutions are these kind of huge, like global solutions, and we forget about the local and we forget that already exists. And it really does need to be harmony between the two and, and thinking about things on different scales and not just looking up for people to figure out these systems for us, but build them ourselves. Yeah. There's, there's something similar that applies as well with another solution. A lot of people, you know, really go, wow, about that is not as, you know, effective necessarily as a lot of these tech folks that are pushing it might make it, which is the idea of vertical farming, right? A lot of the really flashy vertical farms end up using a lot more space or as much space as like they allegedly save because the vertical farms require energy production and that energy production needs space to produce. So things like that, 
a lot of times we get these flash technologies and we really have to interrogate, okay, but are they as useful as we're being told they are? Or do they have other implications and other problems? And it's easy to get swept up in the marketing, but, you know, we, we really do need to... And you, you'll get called a Luddite for this. Um, I have been called a Luddite before, despite not being against technology. But I like being called a Luddite because it gives me an opportunity to actually talk about the history of the Luddites and what they were actually fighting for. It's become like an insult to call somebody a Luddite or they're just anti-technology cavemen. But the actual Luddites were not against technology. They were against the way that the technology is being used to exploit them and to cut them out of their, um, one, their ability to labor and and two, their ability to care for themselves and to care for their families. The issue with the technology that the Luddites were, were revolting against was not the technology itself, it was who controlled the technology and what the consequence of that technology would be on the people. You know, if that technology was introduced and I said, okay, well, you know, everybody benefits from technology, then fine. I don't think anybody would be against that. The issue is when these technologies are introduced, people lose their jobs, people go homeless, people starve. And so it's really more so taking a more critical stance on who owns, who controls, who manages, who distributes, who is involved in technology. How is the technology being implemented? Not so much necessarily the technology itself. Um, and of course, there's certain technologies we could just unequivocally be against, like nuclear bombs. But in a lot of cases, it's not so much about the technology itself. It's about who controls it and how it's being used. I'm absolutely obsessed with that. I'm a Luddite. I am a Luddite. Like, I, I'm not against technology. I'm against the systems in which... Technology exists right now. That's so, and yeah, it being a tool to exploit us. That is so interesting. Yeah. Hashtag Luddite. I think we're kind of coming to an end of our chat. I really, really appreciate you just and all your knowledge. I wonder if you, as we kind of at the end of every episode, we, we try and find like an action that's something that people can do. And I wonder how, if you had any advice, what, how can we action solar punk so it's not just a utopian dream, but it's something that we're cultivating and, and bringing about? Hmm. I mean, I find a lot of hope in the small things that I can affect and the people around me and my audience and the garden that I maintain. So I would say my action for this week is water your plants, literally and metaphorically. As in, you know, water those relationships, water those connections, water those movements, water your actual garden. You know, your plants might actually be suffering, so check on them, you know? Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's it for me. Gardening is a radical act, everyone. There's always looking off to the side as if, you know, <laughs> as if the certain plants, certain plants have been neglected right now. <laughs> no, there's literally a dying plant right here. Look at it. Aww. Oh my God. Oh, I was like, no. shit. Okay, I actually do need to do that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I will water them straight after this. I'm sorry. Andrew, forgive me. <laughs> water your plants, everyone. Make sure your house plants aren't dying. And what your relationships cultivate rich relationships and rich community, I think is the takeaway from this, this chat. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Next week, Larissa and I will be asking, why are the police in our schools? A report in January 2023 in the UK, a thousand members of the police were working in UK schools. And this isn't just a phenomenon happening in the UK. So we're asking, why is this happening? Why are we policing our schools like prisons? These are kids. 
who does this serve and what are the impacts so join us for that and remember if you've got any thoughts feedback questions or resource recommendations if you've read any or watched any great solar punk stuff that you found really inspiring and you want to share please do hit us up on the instagram shadow.mag or give us an email at shadowlightpodcast at gmail.com and also if you're feeling kind please do give us a good review on um spotify or apple we'd really appreciate it um so thanks everyone and thank you so much andrew bye peace all power to the people